You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. On today's episode, we're hearing from Tom on innovation versus improvement. He was recently part of an interview with Jennifer Sparrows as part of her dissertation. Jennifer visited our office to ask Tom about principal leadership skills and the strategies that he's seen successfully lead innovation diffusion across the school. I think we all too often talk about innovation and improvement as if they're interchangeable. So it was really eye-opening for me to hear Tom's thoughts on the difference between the two, but why they're both still equally vital for school success. Jess, I think my favorite part of this podcast was listening to Tom take a trip down memory lane to his years as a school superintendent. Those are years that we all remember really well in our family. Tom shares how new technology and innovations affected schools within the district he served and how focusing on innovation and improvement within a school can dramatically improve learning. Tom also dived into the roles leader, teachers, and principals should serve, the various obstacles leaders will face, and where to start. Let's listen in. Innovation is a new way of doing something, a new way of uh, delivering value. It's different than improvement, which is Um, doing what you're doing better. Schools need to do both. Um, Schools uh, can dramatically improve learning just by getting better at what they're currently doing. So an improvement agenda in a school uh, would mean fidelity to a model where you see um, every teacher in that school Uh, executing at a high level against an agreed upon set of practices. An innovation would be um, a, a, could be a very small or very large experiment with trying something very different. Uh, And, and uh, that could be aiming at different outcomes using or using different practices or using different tools or Give using, some specific examples. using a different schedule. Um, the, the key is really the balance between the two mm-hmm. innovations. I, I would um, I would say that blended learning um, when it was first introduced in the mid 1990s uh, was a pretty radical innovation. Uh, I remember in my first year as a school superintendent uh, visiting uh, my first blended learning classroom and seeing team teaching in an inquiry-based environment where the teacher had this uh, instinctual understanding that the year before Uh, his class had suffered from information scarcity. And now that he had a computer for every two kids, information abundance was the new challenge that, that now synthesizing and sorting and learning to, uh, to apply information was a very new challenge. So that to me is an example of very different instructional strategy that leveraged a set of new uh, technology tools that were uh, introduced into a school environment. Uh, he was the only teacher doing that. So even though it was a new school, he had cut a set of agreements that uh, created an unusually strong access to technology in his classroom. Um, but good example of an innovation that in, in one classroom that then became the norm across that school and the year after uh, the norm across that district. So why did it become the norm across the school? Um, and, and can you describe the process by which it became the norm across the school? The most important way um, for innovation to spread is um, based on a strong track record, mm-hmm. right? So you can sell an idea to people based on its promise, but it's much easier if you can show people that it works. And what um, many of us were convinced of very quickly is that um, the leading indicators in his classroom are very, very strong. So high levels of student engagement, um, an obvious, um, it was obvious that deeper learning was taking place. In other words, students were learning at a very deep level um, to find information, to sort information, to apply information. It was collaborative learning. So the 
early indicators of um, the observational factors were very, very strong. And then very quickly, as we could begin uh, gathering data from that early classroom, you could tell that it was working uh, really well. Mm -hmm. So I think it was the combination of the early and then um, uh, performance indicators as they began to, to show up that um, really convinced the rest of the faculty that um, that this was a good idea. Let, let's note the preconditions that existed so that it was a new school. So you had a group of faculty that had been hired around um, an innovative set of ideas. So, um, and they were in a, in a beautiful new building with better access to technology than existed around the district. So sort of a, a super saturated solution, really ready, um, but that had not been previously introduced to this particular learning model. And so when that learning model was introduced into this sort of saturated solution, um, it, it moved very, very quickly. And then what happened in the school district is that um, Bill Gates called me in my in my first month as a superintendent and, and said, um, they're doing one-to-one -one learning in Australia. Would you be interested in seeing it? And so I sent a group of teachers along with 10 other school districts. And uh, we began, we, we became one of the first school districts to, to go one-to-one -one in our secondary schools. Um, and so that was a function of, of a new superintendent that had a strong technology background, so ready to try things, but just unaware um, that this sort of an innovation existed. And so again, being introduced, introducing a, an interesting learning model into a set of preconditions where, uh, where they can be quickly adopted and spread. I think, I think that was the case in both the school and the district. I'm assuming, how big was the district? Maybe I should make 23,000 students. Okay, so you, you, I'm assuming you had schools then that weren't necessarily in those same conditions of That's, being startup schools, hiring a certain type of person. So what were some of the challenges and how did you, how did you see the leaders of those schools overcome those challenges when the innovation jumped to those more traditional settings? So we, we actually used a micro school strategy. Um, and I, I, we're just beginning to see that occur again uh, today. Uh, some people might call it a, a pilot school strategy or a demonstration school strategy, but typically in those schools, you have a 100% um, agreement around a particular learning model. By a micro school, what I mean is kind of a school within a school strategy. And in all 10 of our secondary schools, we launched at uh, these one-to-one -one academies. And so we went directly to teachers and to uh, parents and students and gauged the level of interest by school and then did our best to uh, match those up so that every family that was interested in participating uh, had had the opportunity, and it, in some places there were more teachers, and and some places there were more parents. But taking the innovation directly to the street, really, and um, I think that was very important. Uh, rather than trying to impose this on a on a large system, um, inviting people that were interested to participate. Uh, I, I think is, uh, and then allowing it to grow from there, I think is, is very important. Th that was particularly important in this case because it was such a immature model. I mean, we were so, it was, I, I now call it a content-free approach. Um, we had intrepid teachers making up curriculum. Um, we didn't have... Um, a strong set of best practices yet because we were all so, so, so new. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that invitational sort of an approach um, worked well. More recently, you can see evidence of this approach in Kettle Moraine mm -hmm. in a school district. It's a small school district west of Milwaukee with a, a brilliant superintendent, Pat DeKlotz. And she noticed in her community that there were both teachers and parents that were ready to move more quickly than others. Mm -hmm. 
And she devised, she used a micro school strategy to create a fast lane, slow lane approach to innovation that I think was uh, brilliant. So in one elementary school, she gauged interest at being about 50-50. So she cut it in half and made one side of it uh, a student-centered, dependent charter school. Um, the other side remained a traditional district school. And in the high school, she invited proposals for um, blended uh, learning academies. And she received three proposals and they each started with about um, two teachers and 40 students. Uh, one focused on global studies, one on health and one on performing arts. And almost half of the students at Kettle Marine High School now go to one of those uh, academies. Right. So there are uh, about 800 students in those academies. Um, so they've grown very rapidly over time. But um, I think rather than imposing kind of sort of a career mm -hmm. academy model on this traditional high school, uh, inviting proposals from teacher leaders mm -hmm. and then starting them very small, letting them grow from the ground up is a is a super smart approach to innovation. So if, if there's a point in time where, um, you know, you want, I'll use you know, um, you know, Roger Everett's whole diffusion of innovation and you have the, you know, the late majority and the laggards, is that something that you think in schools, uh, school leaders should tackle that? Or is there a place within schools to allow the traditional to continue to exist. The, the interesting thing about innovation is that it creates inequity in a system because it does allow or encourage people to do things differently, hoping for step function improvement, right? And an improvement strategy, you're, you're seeking incremental improvement in a traditional set of outcomes and innovation, you're seeking step function improvement usually on traditional, but often on new metrics. Um, so it's always tricky for a leader to introduce inequity into a system. And this is why I think the, the Pat DeClotz model of creating a fast lane, slow lane are important. However, I think it's critical that very quickly that a leader be able um, to put a vision on a timeline mm -hmm. and say that We've, through a community conversation, we've developed a, a new and different vision uh, about the future of learning in our school or in our city. And some of us are going there right now, uh, but we're all going there because we believe uh, there's a, a better opportunity for all students. So what, what leaders can't tolerate long term is chronic underperformance uh, or or chronic inequity inside a school or system. That can't be tolerated. But what it, um, it, it can be useful, um, almost always necessary to have, uh, just like we do in school, where we want kids to be able to learn at their own pace. Mm -hmm. um, the adults in a, in a city or a system need the opportunity to learn at their own, uh, at their own pace. Right. So it's, it's a slow lane, not an offering. Right. They, have, they still have to make that. So when you think about these schools where this has happened, what's the role of the principal within in the diffusion of these innovations? Because you've talked a couple times about superintendents going down to more of that site-based leadership. I can't think of any example of any of the um, the the hundreds of great schools that we've been at, where the principal hasn't played a very active role in, if not spurring uh, the innovation, supporting the spread of the innovation. Right. So th this is not likely to happen in a school or system where there is not uh, supportive leadership. So short answer is it, it's super important. Um, leaders can take different roles. They can take sort of a, um, a, a the role of a driver of innovation, um, but they can also take a more um, a bit more of a passive role 
or one that at least puts others um, out in front um, or invites shared leadership. I think what we can say now uh, about both high quality schools and high quality school systems is that uh, the heroic leadership model just doesn't work, not, at least not long term. And so trying to do everything yourself and doing it very, very quickly um, has lots of risk associated with it. And so taking the time to create a distributed leadership structure um, is, is super important. And have there been some of those distributed structures that you've seen work better than others? Are there qualities to that distributed leadership that's important to note? One, one thing I want to mention about distributed leadership, uh, the, the one reason that it's more important than ever is now that we've made the, the shift to digital learning where everybody's connected and everything is connected. Um, in many systems, teachers and students and parents have found interesting new resources online and they're often deploying them. And so if it was the case in the, in the old days when we had you know, district mandated um, textbook adoptions and teachers always did their own supplementing. Uh, there's a, a lot more of that happening today than there used to be. In, in other words, there, in, in many systems, teachers are more off the ranch than they've ever been. And so if you as a leader don't identify that um, and look for really promising practices among your teacher leaders and, and, and instead try to impose a change on the system, it will almost surely fail. And so the key today is, is trying to create a generative environment where you, you're through a community conversation, shaping a framework, and then inviting your teacher leaders uh, to be part of growing into that framework. Uh, so identifying, um, cultivating, rewarding, uh, teacher leadership is, is super important. And this can be done in full-time roles where teachers take on a blended learning. It, it, it needs really um, multiple leadership levels inside a school. And I think identifying teacher leaders and giving them permanent roles uh, or giving them project-based leadership on a temporary basis. Um, I think these are two really effective ways to enlist teacher leaders inside the system. And to prepare teacher leaders for the role of um, being able to actively lead, uh, not just contribute ideas. Have you seen certain um, professional development that needs to be done or certain support that needs to be? Because that's not something that most teachers get through their regular teacher training. Right. Um, th there's a bunch of great groups working on this, like leading educators. Um, we think teachers need to learn to be supervisors uh, so that they can quickly, as they as they move through a set of competencies, um, when they're ready, that they can begin to mentor new teachers. So how to how to lead a grade span team, how to be a mentor uh, to uh, a new teacher. Secondly, we think teachers need to be great project managers. Mm. We think project management is is uh, maybe the most important career skill uh, today. And ironically, um, even great project-based learning teachers don't often recognize that they're great project managers mm. and they don't help kids become meta about being a project manager. Uh, Bernie Trilling has a new book coming out called Project Management uh, for Education. And... Um, he, he makes the case that uh, it's super important for teachers to be project managers and, and to help kids become great project managers. So I think those are two really important uh, strategies. A third I would add is that many of the innovative schools that we see are using uh, design strategies, design thinking. Design thinking is a, it's a cousin of project-based learning, but in projects historically, um, we've been attacking a defined problem with a defined solution. We put it on a timeline and it's a sprint often with a team to a public product. Design thinking is attacking an unknown problem, mm -hmm. uh, maybe an, an adaptive problem. 
And it starts with empathy, trying to understand who's the customer, what's the problem. So it's problem finding and then converging on possible solutions and then iterating. And so um, using design thinking as a teacher and then teaching students to use design thinking uh, across the curriculum, uh, we, we think those are all parts of um, the new learning for teachers. The, the last thing that I'll mention is just the mindset, having an innovation mindset um, means to, to us that it's a growth mindset, that effort matters, that it's a team mindset, that collaboration matters, that it's a, uh, an entrepreneurial mindset, that initiative matters. And all of those mean um, being willing in class to say, I don't know, mm -hmm. and being totally comfortable with that um, and, and, uh, and learning with um, with your class on on many fronts. And and how do you see teachers gaining these skill sets? Is it through formal programs? Is it through just opportunities that are presented to them and the principal acting as a mentor? Yeah, well, we've for twenty years, I think we've seen uh, really good success with professional learning communities, and and uh, Singapore American School is a terrific example of how transformative that is. And it's a combination of two things, right? It's it's connecting adults. Uh, and number two, it's around an, a, an improvement framework. It's a structured approach to, um, to learning together. Uh, Carnegie Foundation calls theirs networked improvement communities. Same kind of an idea. It's connecting people around an improvement framework. So I, I would say uh, professional learning communities are, are super important. I think this idea of um, leading projects is another very important developmental strategy. It's how it's how um, system heads and school heads can take their organizational change agenda, break it into a series of projects, distribute those projects across the organization, and invite emerging leaders to manage or join a project team. So you're doing two things at once. You're developing your organization, but you're also developing your talent mm -hmm. within the organization by asking people to, to take on part of your improvement or innovation agenda. Uh, perhaps the most important professional learning that you and I have done in our careers is uh, school visits. Mm -hmm. I know for, for the Singapore American team and for our team, they've been nothing short of life-changing. And we could both mention hundreds of schools that we have seen where we've learned something, where our mental model mm -hmm. is different because we saw uh, adults and kids uh, working together, maybe around a different set of aims in a different way. Um, so we think school visits are um, super important. I like that they definitely Thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoy this episode and our others. This is our third season of the Getting Smart podcast, and we're really enjoying learning from and with leaders in the space. Do you have somebody you'd like to learn from? Submit your ideas to editor at gettingsmart.com, and we'll be sure to add them to our list. Now let's get back to Tom and Jennifer to learn more about what it takes to innovate and improve within a school. So when you're thinking about these specific examples that you have, what are some specific obstacles or barriers that you saw in schools face and how did they overcome those obstacles or barriers? The biggest challenge, um, and, and I know you, you dealt with this at Singapore American because you built this beautiful plan and then it's like you, you step back and you go, how, how on earth do we implement this? Um, and so it's, it's the question of um, implementation. How do we take an ambitious agenda and make it doable? So there's a couple, uh, a couple important examples. Um, the first is working from the outside in. It's uh, the, the Clayton Christensen Institute is the sort of leading advocate of disruptive innovation. They always talk about innovation starting um, around the edges, around the areas of non-consumption. And I think um, one super smart thing you did at Singapore American School was start around the edges. It's look for the places where you where there's an easy entry point, sort of low-hanging fruit. Uh, you, you converted AP classes to teacher-developed uh, AT classes. Um, you created 
uh, catalyst course that were really student led, student directed. So these were ways at the at the upper division, sort of choice based courses where uh, you gave people a picture of what the finish line looked like. Kids doing, you know, really important extended challenges, often in teams, connecting to the world. So you gave them a picture of what uh, of what good looks like. Then you introduced um, inquiry based learning and maker learning. Uh, across the curriculum. So you introduced the genius hour, maybe just an hour on a Friday where mm-hmm. kids have more control. Um, you, you created maker labs in the school and you created maker labs that kids could access before school uh, and, and during recess, mm-hmm. after school, sort of these areas of non-consumption where you invited uh, kids in. Um, so I think looking for those Easy entry points is is the the first lesson. The second lesson is working in phases. There's a number of ways to phase the work in. Uh, the The trick when it comes to innovations in education is that you're often working on multiple dimensions: new technology and new practices and new structures. and And it's very difficult to uh, align all of those. So the most common approach is finding an entry point, usually where there's great teacher leadership and then working up or down from there. So that could be transforming your middle schools and then working up to high school and down to elementary school. Uh, that, that would be common in a, in a, I call them an enterprise system where everybody's using the same, same pedagogy, same curriculum, same systems. We've also seen really good examples of allowing people to progress when ready. So this could work in a school or it could uh, work in, a, in a, a smaller school district where you take a readiness assessment of individuals or, or teacher teams, and then you provide support where there are groups of teachers ready to move. So um, allowing people to sort of gauge whether they're fast lane or slow lane, and then providing support where, where people uh, are ready to move. But phasing in the work, uh, I think, is is super important. Sort of thinking in three-year um, chunks. Longer than that is, is, is probably, you, your vision is gonna be off and need to be reset uh, after three years. But I, I think um, many change initiatives can be uh, accomplished in, in three years. The the last thing that any good uh, school head or system head needs to be doing is leading community conversations that result in a set of temporary agreements that keep you moving. I like to think about these as what's going to be different and better about our school next September than it is today. And then building agreement internally first and then externally um, around what's going to be different and better. And because change is happening so quickly in our world and in education technology, uh, I think this process needs to be pretty continuous. And so this is a new role of school heads of being an agreement crafter, where you're building a set of temporary agreements with your, uh, your stakeholders around this, what's different next fall, what's going to be different the, the year after that sort of not more than a three-year time horizon, but but it's a moving three-year time horizon that um, balances an agenda of innovation and improvement. Mm. Um, because you, you really want both of these things happening simultaneously. You, you want to get better at the things that you've all agreed upon, but then there are a few things that you want to do differently. Mm. And you can make a decision as a school community, are we going to try that that innovation in one classroom or one grade span, uh, or can we take that on school wide? Mm-hmm. And it's really facilitating that how much innovation can we handle conversation uh, that I think needs to be ongoing today. It can, can innovation be diffused too quickly? And the reason I'm asking that is I know in, in like in our context, we have teachers who just jump on everything because they're so excited and, yeah. and um, you know, is there, 
when you're making these conversations about how much innovation can a system handle, yeah. is there a caution about too much too quickly? I, I, I jump quickly to um, my years as a superintendent uh, were right after Howard Gardner published uh, Multiple Intelligences. And I saw more dumb stuff done in Howard's name. Uh, you know, I'm sure he did too. Um, it's it's interesting that education is highly prone to fads, but um, deeply immune to real innovation, structural innovation. So you have things that sweep across the globe, really. Right. Um, sort of masquerading as innovations, but it's really, really hard to do deep structural work. Um, so a lot of really thin um, stuff like multiple intelligences will sweep through classrooms and not be done very well. Um, I'm a big fan of project-based learning and, and high engagement learning. Um, the, the problem with that is you can easily move away from a traditional structured direct in instruction and move to a high engagement model um, and do it very, very poorly and see the level of rigor drop very quickly. Um, and so that's an example of uh, perhaps moving too quickly to, to a, a perceived innovation uh, without with lots of unintended consequences because it wasn't um, it wasn't well tested or it wasn't well um, implemented. So that brings me to um, another question I have, which is around monitoring. It's like, how do you, how have you seen systems or, uh, or store leaders monitor whether the innovation is having the intended impact on learning? Because I think what you just said is very true that, you know, it's the flavor of the month, it's the fat of the year. How do we know if the innovation is being implemented with fidelity and the teacher practice is changing? And then how do we know if there actually is the impact on student learning that we're wanting to see? Yeah, we're not very good at that. Um, there's many other sectors that are much better at structuring uh, real-time experiments and monitoring those and, um, and being very, very iterative. Um, I've been involved with a couple hundred ed tech startups, and it's not infrequent for them to go through weekly sprints where they're experimenting um, with a new strategy or a new product feature and they'll decide at the end of the week whether they're going to adopt it or uh, or abandon it. And and they'll usually have a, a good amount of data to make that decision. And we are still not very good at collecting and combining uh, formative um, formative assessment and formative feedback more broadly uh, to inform this same sort of iterative development. It's a structural problem in education. I think it's both a mindset, but it's also a, an innovation infrastructure that just doesn't exist. We, we're, we're burdened by a lack of interoperability. Um, so it's a technology problem, it's a, a standards problem, and it's a, a mindset problem. There are some promising uh, things happening in the United States on this front. Um, Leap Innovations and Digital Promise, Highlander Institute uh, are some of the groups that are involved in the, the Learning Assembly, which is uh, seven Gates Foundation uh, funded groups that uh, are using a common approach to rapid cycle trials. Well, they'll, they'll, they'll test a, a new application or, or a new practice or both, but on a, on a very quick uh, cycle. So I think that's a, a very, very important development. It's something that we need to get much better at very quickly. Yeah. Um, I know it's one that we really struggle with in trying to make sure it's not just about the student learning, but the teacher practice itself actually is changing. In, in ways that are going to have the intended impact. 
Um, can I go back to, I was, I was thinking about a barrier that we're facing in our setting, and I'd love to hear your views on how do you help bring parents along in, or how have you seen districts or school leaders successfully help bring parents along, especially when it's a parent population yeah. that was very successful in the old traditional system? I, I'm encouraged by what I see happening around, uh, at least around the United States, um, with community conversations um, aimed at developing new uh, graduate profiles, new student learning outcomes. And we, we've seen this happen in, in hundreds of communities. Um, they, and they're often community meetings um, in, in El Paso, these happened uh, at, at all the middle schools and uh, really based on Tony Wagner's work 20 years ago, asking a few simple questions. How has school changed mm -hmm. since, how, how has the world changed since mm -hmm. you were in school? Um, as a result, what do you think kids should know and be able to do? And then maybe following that up with what kinds of learning experiences do you think would would help promote uh, the, the knowledge skills and those knowledge skills and dispositions. Uh, and, and in every community where you have that conversation, whether, whether it's well-resourced or uh, poorly resourced, you get a very thoughtful set of student learning outcomes. Uh, EdLeader 21 recently produced a new guide called profileofagraduate.org. And that is a roadmap for having these community conversations. It includes a gallery of schools and um, districts and networks that have done this well. But I think that's really the starting point is, is what should kids know and be able to do? And from that conversation, uh, engaging uh, parents and, and other stakeholders in the conversation about learning and then learning reporting. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm excited about, um, the mastery transcript collaborative. This is now a, a network of 150 independent schools, mostly in the United States that have banded together to develop a new kind of transcript that, um, will communicate what kids know and do, you know, much more accurately and, and, and leave a lot of the unintended consequences of the old transcript. I'm, I'm encouraged by the work of the Great Schools Partnership in New England, um, a regional approach that has worked with high schools and legislatures on what they call a proficiency-based or competency-based approach. And maybe the most important thing that they've done that uh, hasn't been done anywhere else is they built a consortium of 75 colleges and universities, including all the public universities in New England, that have agreed to accept a proficiency-based diploma. So taking that barrier away for parents and uh, school counselors and, uh, and school heads, uh, I think is enormously important. Mm -hmm. So it, it all comes back to, to community conversations. Yeah. Um, and I think that starting with the why and helping parents to be able to understand the reasons why these changes need to take place. Right. Um, so if you're, when you think about these districts that, or these schools that have been really successful in, in doing this, how have they had to change their structures and the allocation of their resources? Did they, did they bring in um, new leadership positions? Did they do away with some of the traditional positions? Did, was there an impact on maybe some of the business functions? Um, how has budgeting changed? So any of those kinds of nuts and bolts, structures and resources? Yeah, this question um, leads to a set of challenges um, that are why it's easier to start a new school than to transform an existing school, right? Because um, changing all the things that you described are uh, staffing models and schedules and structures is super difficult on the fly. Um, so if, if there is an opportunity to start over uh, or to start something new and to let it grow, that's the, the best example. Leveraging teacher leadership, we talked about 
earlier an, an example of uh, an organization that's promoting this uh, nationwide is uh, publicimpact.org um, has launched an initiative called Opportunity Culture, opportunityculture.org. This is a structural approach to promoting teacher leadership and allowing your best teachers to um, make a bigger impact. And so they have a number of strategies. Uh, this includes creating grade span teams that teacher leaders can uh, manage. They all include different uses of technology that are sort of time technology swaps that uh, encourage teachers to, to spend more time on value-added activities. So teachers working in teams, um, blended and personalized learning really benefits from uh, differentiated staffing. So this would be different levels of teaching. Um, if you're running a station rotation model or uh, uh, the ability to have big open spaces where you can have multiple teachers, but also have uh, some paraeducators that are part of a multi-age team can be uh, really helpful. So in that sort of multi-aged, um, multi-classroom model, uh, you, you may have one teacher that is uh, taking a leadership role for 100 students, and she may have uh, three junior teachers and, and several uh, special and para-educators uh, working with her. So that's an example of sort of pod leadership that we're seeing um, much more often. Competency-based um, progressions where kids are moving at their own pace is, um, I think, going to be the, the biggest challenge of fully implementing personalized learning because it, it really deconstructs our, the way we think about school being a set of um, grade levels, right? And if kids are moving at their own pace, what we really need are big grade spans where kids are moving much more seamlessly, perhaps in different rates and different levels and different, uh, different subjects. Um, and that kind of a structure um, requires a new way to fund school um, because some students are going to need a lot more support. So I think that calls for um, weighted and portable funding. Weighted meaning that schools should receive funding relevant to the amount of challenge that they face. So a high poverty school should receive more funding than a low poverty school. And that money should follow kids to uh, the best opportunity for those kids. Um, sometimes that's in that school. Sometimes if it's a high school and uh, there's an online opportunity for that student, it should follow that student to that online opportunity. So portable and, and weighted funding, um, I, I think, are another part of the structure. You know, we've seen great schools in the worst possible conditions, but facilities do matter. Mm -hmm. And if you go to um, one of my favorite elementary schools is called Design 39 in Poway, California. It's just north of San Diego. And it's a spectacular facility with big open uh, pods of double classrooms. Almost every classroom has a, a big vista uh, to the mountains uh, to, to the east of there. And that kind of an inspiring open um, classroom uh, setting is it's just much more conducive mm -hmm. to personalized and, and competency-based learning than a place that's a, a long haul with, you know, small classrooms um, on both sides. So facilities matter. So districts really need to sync up their um, their facilities budget. Um, you know, they can start small with an experiment that takes out a couple walls. One of our um, favorite school networks is called um, New Tech Network. It's um, about 200 project-based schools around the United States. And they feature a learning model that's uh, project-based 
and integrated. Mm -hmm. So almost all of their classes are um, double blocks that are team taught. So it really helps to have big double classroom to teach that way. Right. And so that may mean a, a school will have to go in um, and knock down some walls and make some structural changes to support this new, uh, this new learning model. So innovation um, often faces a lot of barriers. It, it may require a new, a new schedule, a new structure, a new, uh, a new facility. And, and we talked earlier about new reporting schemes to, uh, to both parents and other stakeholders. So knowing that there are all of these components that have to come together to allow innovation to diffuse, if a, if a school leader was thinking about bringing in a change, an innovation, where would you suggest they start? School visits. School visits. Um, I mean, school visits are so powerful. You know, they they just give you a different sense of possibility. And when you see remarkable things happening for kids that look like yours, it's just there's no you know excuse. Um, it, it just takes down barriers when you see great things happening for kids that that look like your student population. Um, uh, you know, building a culture of adult learning is so critical. I, I found as a new superintendent, I was so looking forward to, to being a superintendent, um, uh, having run a, a big public company that really valued adult learning. And then coming into a school district, I, I was surprised that it was not a learning organization. It was not a place where yeah. people were learning together. And so the first thing that we did was to say, every meeting that we have is gonna start by learning together. Um, that's the most important thing that we can do. And uh, we're, we're gonna model that and we've got we have lots of urgent stuff to deal with, but there's nothing more important than learning together. So th those sort of simple things that, uh, that that create a learning culture. And then I would say creating transparency is super important. Um, one of the first things that I did was to put um, butcher block paper on the, on the uh, walls in the, in the office and every day after coming back to visiting uh, classrooms, I'd put my my notes up on the wall that were observations, what I saw, uh, what was great and what could be better. And it really freaked people out because mm -hmm. uh, it was not a place that talked about getting better. It was not a place that was open to the sort of public criticism. Uh, and there was a great balance of this was really great. Man, I, I wish this had been better. Um, and pretty soon uh, other people began um, adding their comments and they just they 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 came to understand that we were going to have an open conversation about what's great and what needs to get better. Um, and, you know, being willing to to be a transparent learner uh, yourself is is super important. Um, letting people see that you uh, need and value feedback is um is super important. So it's culture, culture, culture. Um, and then I think it's vision, creating shared vision. And then it's looking for ways to distribute leadership across the school or across the system, inviting other people into those full-time and part-time uh, sort of leadership opportunities. So that um, brings us to the ends of my questions. Uh, my last one, is, um, you know, is there anything else that you'd like to share about innovation, innovation diffusion, any last words of wisdom? So innovation diffusion is an interesting term. Um, it's one, the, the reason that we wrote uh, Smart Cities, that I launched this investigation four years ago, is that our sector seems to be particularly bad at innovation diffusion. It's a sector where a good idea won't walk across the street. Mm -hmm. And you can see this in every school district in America where there's a great school and then the school down the street is not, they haven't learned anything from the success of, 
of a school nearby. So I was super puzzled by, by this in a world where, where innovations just go global in a matter of weeks in some sectors and, and why um, none of this seemed to permeate. If you, if you looked at the schools in Silicon Valley 10 years ago, you know, the, arguably the most innovative zip codes on the planet and almost none of what was being learned in those startups was showing up in those schools. Mm-hmm. Like, what is that about? Mm-hmm. Right. That, um, so it's a, it's a frustrating sector from that standpoint, because we, we have built this sedimentary system of years of traditions and policies, and it's, it's turned into a, a big Gordian knot that's made us very um, unsusceptible to, to deep um, and structural innovation. You know, there's, there's no incentives for innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no supports for innovation. So we studied this for a couple of years and, and wrote uh, this book, Smart Cities, about ecosystems that get better at innovating. And we, we found that building a talent pipeline was key and that having community leaders that had a shared vision was key and that aligning investment um, was key and, and that all of those things could create a, a citywide uh, ecosystem of, of innovation, but innovation diffusion in a school seems to me to be too passive a term. Mm. I, I, I do think it, there has to be active innovation leadership. And it gets back to this idea of you can't tolerate um, malpractice. You can't tolerate uh, low performance for long. And, and a, a good leader, I think, has to demand equity, but innovation creates inequity. So how do you deal with that paradox? And I think the answer is you, you have to put your vision on a timeline. And when your vision's on a timeline, then it's not really about diffusion, right? right? It's about actively managing an innovation agenda. It's not leaving innovation to chance. And at the school level, um, I think that's the key difference, that leadership can't wait for these things to spread or assume uh, that they'll spread. There really needs to be an active set of agreements that change the the culture, uh, the incentives, um, the, the community conversation. Um, to ensure that innovation happens, not um, wait to see if it happens. Thank you. Thanks to Jennifer Sparrow for speaking with Tom and our team. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Caroline. And Jess. Signing off. Signing off.